may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us in worship and so grateful for putting the focus on our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And certainly as we gather in worship, uh, He is the audience, right? <laughs> and we worship and it's wonderful to focus on Him, our great Redeemer and King. Now let's do that this morning again as we turn to this passage in the Gospel of Luke. We've read this earlier, Luke chapter 20. If you turn there, if you're our guest either here in the auditorium or in the hub or join us online, we are in a journey through the Gospel of Luke. We've been on this journey for a long time, but it's not been boring. Say amen. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's been a blessing, it has, and we're so grateful for this ability to focus our worship on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and remember each and every day how wonderful He is, right? How wonderful He is. If you're there at Luke chapter 20... I want to begin by just asking you a couple of questions, make a, or maybe rather I should say make a couple of statements, and I think that you can fill in the blank for me, okay? Here's the first. If you want to avoid an argument, there are two subjects not to discuss. They are what? Politics and religion. All right, you won that. Now the daily double, okay? Here's another statement. Nothing is certain in life except death and taxes, okay? Now clearly, our Lord Jesus did not adhere to the recommendation not to discuss those subjects. Because I, I want you to see here that that's exactly what Jesus talks about in this passage of Scripture. Jesus is in the temple and the subject of his message, politics, religion, death, and taxes. Jesus was just a little bit more than controversial, then and now. Now notice Jesus does this after he has done some other things in this final week of his life. First of all, he started the week by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, which clearly, intentionally identified him as the king of the Jews, the Messiah, long-awaited, long-promised. Jesus came intentionally riding in and receiving the affirmation of the king. As people were saying, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. 
Jesus did not do that in obscurity. He did that very publicly, very intentionally. And then, having come into Jerusalem, where does he go? He enters the temple, and what does he do in the temple? He turns over the tables of the money changers. He cleans house. The whole system of religion made into a dominating money-making scheme. He turns the whole thing up, upside down. And then he accuses the religious leaders saying this. It's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Again, not exactly seeker sensitive here. Subtle. (laughs) And when he's questioned by the religious leaders about his authority... He refuses to answer their interrogation. And when he does decide to answer, he decides to respond to their question about his authority by talking about four topics. Again, what are they? Religion, politics, death, and taxes. Now, why would Jesus do this? Why would he do this? Here's why. Because Jesus is presenting himself as king. He is the king. And he's presenting himself as the rightful king, the heir of the throne of David, the Lord's Messiah. He's doing it for that reason, and secondly, doing this and saying these things, Jesus is pressing his claims of kingship. He's pressing his claims as king against the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Jesus is intentionally presenting himself as king, and he's intentionally Pressing his claims as king against the religious hypocrisy of religious power of his day. So we can't make any mistake here. Jesus is claiming authority. He's claiming authority. And in claiming authority in this final week in Jerusalem... He calls for loyalty. He calls for loyalty. And I want us to combine both of those today. Both of those today, I want us to think about what Jesus says here in regard to this subject of kingdom loyalty. Kingdom loyalty. And Jesus shares a parable as he does this. He begins to talk about loyalty He shares a parable, and the parable is very clear for people to understand. It's historic, but it's also prophetic. What Jesus is saying in this parable is historic, but it's also prophetic. And in the parable, Jesus accuses the religious leaders of high treason. High treason. And that's the first thing that Jesus is sharing here. 
he is talking about the treason against the king, the king of Israel, the Lord God. Treason against the king. Listen to the parable. Let's just listen to it again, beginning at verse 9, if you would, in Luke chapter 20. If you turn there, Luke chapter 20, verse 9. Listen quickly to the parable again. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, and this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now this is such a clear parable that one writer, scholar, pastor, Philip Ryken, has said this. He said that Jesus is sharing a prophetic autobiography. A prophetic autobiography. He's talking about what has happened. But he's also talking about what is going to happen to him. Now notice the characters in this parable. They're very clear to understand. (laughs) There is the owner of the vineyard. That's God. There is the vine. The vine, the vineyard, the vine. That's Israel. How do we know that? Because the vine, the vineyard, was a symbol throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures... Of the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was sharing this parable in the outer courts of the temple, people could have looked over their shoulder at the temple building itself, and here's what they would have seen across the front of the temple itself a huge, solid gold vine stretched all the way across the front of the temple and the clusters of grapes, those grapes were made up of precious jewels and gems. That's the reason this building was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, spectacular in its beauty. So Jesus is talking about a vineyard and a vine and here is the vine on the temple wall with clusters of precious stones shining in the sun. It's incredibly beautiful, but the temple is totally empty. It's as empty as the Holy of Holies. In 60 BC, the Roman general Pompey, being told that God dwelled within the Holy of Holies with the people in the temple, He brazenly walked right in and came out and said, it's empty. 
There was no presence of God manifested in that temple in Jesus' day. Beautiful, ornate, luxurious building, but void of the presence and the power of the Holy One of Israel. Who are the keepers of the vineyards? They are the religious leaders. Who are the servants? The servants in this story are the prophets that God has sent. He has sent prophets again and again and again to speak to the people, to call them to produce fruit for the owner. And what has happened from these keepers of the vineyard? What have they done to these servants of the owner, the prophets? Well, it's just, it's just a legacy of opposition and brutality. It's a trail of blood. They have opposed the prophets all the way back, beginning with Elisha to the very last of the prophets, Zechariah, who they stoned in the temple itself. And God sent one final great prophet before the coming of Messiah, John the Baptist. And he was beheaded for his testimony. And then, of course, in the parable... The owner says, I will send my beloved son. That's very, very important what Jesus says. My beloved son, because you hear the echoes of the father's voice. You remember what was said when Jesus was baptized? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And what had been said on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, James, and John were there just a few weeks earlier. What did they hear? The voice coming out of the glory cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is prophesying here. He is sharing history, but he's also prophesying. Because he says, this beloved son will be dragged outside of the vineyard, outside of Jerusalem, and he will be put to death. And that would happen in just a very few days. But then he also prophesied, didn't he, that there were coming days. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not, no, no. Why? Because they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. He was saying that God the Father would take away, take away the management of his kingdom on earth that had been that of Israel for all these centuries. And he would give this participation in the kingdom to other nations. That's the reason they responded this way. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. He was saying, God is going to come. He's going to snatch away 
the very identity that you think you have as his kingdom, he's going to give it to others, other nations that you think of as pagan and so far from him. They shouted. They shouted in his face, no, this, no, this cannot happen. It will never happen. And notice, what was Jesus' response? His first response is he just stared at them. Imagine that moment. That he stares at them with the, the gaze of absolute sovereign authority. And he brings a message that says, yes, you're going to reject me. You're rejecting the king. And God's going to bring retribution. But listen, he's also going to bring a reconstruction. A reconstruction. Notice the reconstruction that Jesus talked about. Jesus uses another image. He, notice he shifts the image. He's talked about the vineyard. But then he shifts the image from one of a vine to the image of a stone. And a stone, all those people recognized as an image of Messiah. Messiah is the stone. It's the Old Testament image, one of them, for Messiah when he comes. As a matter of fact, Jesus, as he speaks next, he quotes the song that the crowds were singing when he rode the donkey into Jerusalem. What were they singing? They were singing Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the King of David. Welcome, welcome, welcome. But then Jesus quotes that very psalm, but a different verse. Here's what he says. Verse 17 from that same psalm. He looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone." that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That Psalm 118, which is a psalm of welcome of Messiah, also says there would be a rejection of Messiah. But the stone rejected would become the cornerstone of reconstruction. Now notice, what do we learn about this stone? It, the stone here, again, it's important. This is an image of Messiah. What do we learn about the stone from what Jesus says? First of all, he'll be a rejected stone. The Messiah was rejected. He came into his own, John says, and his own people did not receive him. He's a rejected stone. But Messiah, 
will become the cornerstone. Notice that. The chief of the corner. He will become the foundation stone for what? What do you need a foundation stone for? Where is Jesus standing? In the temple. Messiah will be rejected, but he will become the cornerstone of a new temple. A temple not made with hands. A spiritual temple. He will be the chief cornerstone. And Messiah eventually will be a judgment stone. Because this king, which rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, is coming back someday. (laughs) Not riding a donkey. You can read about it in Revelation 19. He's coming back. And notice what he says about himself as the stone that's been rejected. But will become the cornerstone of a new temple. He says, verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He says, anyone who falls on that stone. That means to stumble over this stone. It's the idea of rejecting. Anyone who rejects the king. It's sometimes called a stumbling block. That Jesus will be the stumbling block people will reject. But this one who is rejected will also be a stone of judgment. Because he is coming as judge. The stone of judgment. When he said this, listen carefully. Those who were listening to him would immediately think of another one of their prophets. The, name, the man's name was Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 2, we're told how Daniel, who was a servant in Babylon under the great king Nebuchadnezzar, was called to interpret a dream. And you may remember in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar sees this huge, huge statue with a head of gold and all the way down until clay, feet and toes. (laughs) Representing human government. Especially human government that lifts itself up against God. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I saw in my dream that there was a stone not cut with hands. Not not worthy to be put into a temple wall. Doesn't quite fit in. It's, It's not made with hands, but I saw in my dream this stone came crashing upon the image. Pulverized it to dust. And then the stone became a mountain that filled all the earth. What did Daniel say that meant? He said, there's coming a stone who will bring judgment on anti-God, anti-Christ. All that oppose God. And he will come as a stone from God himself, not made with hands, And this one will become a mountain. The kingdoms of the earth will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Amen. Amen. This is what Jesus 
is referencing, and everyone knows this. They understand what he's saying. My friends, listen, Jesus is the living stone. (laughs) He is a living stone. He was rejected, yes, but guess what? You know, he was resurrected. And now he's been erected (laughs) as the cornerstone of a new temple. He's the stone of salvation. He is the rock of ages that's been cleft for us. Out of his side, the water and the blood. He is the stone of the ages, broken for us. And all who believe in him receive the gift of life. They too are resurrected to a new life. And anyone who trusts in Christ, they become living stones in a new temple. That's who we are, brothers and sisters, as believers in Jesus Wretched as we are, rebel sinners as we have been, but Christ's redeeming blood has saved us, washed us, resurrected us from death, and placed us as living stones in a habitation, a house for God, His temple. Living, breathing, new humanity in Christ. What a God we serve. Now there's one king. To whom we pledge our ultimate allegiance. And that's the last thing I want you to see that Jesus calls for. He calls out treason. He calls out treason. And then he describes this reconstruction. And then he calls for allegiance. Allegiance to the king. Now, Jesus' parable is so clear. <laughs> the religious leaders, what impact does it have on them? Well, they're, they're not real happy with him. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests. Now, notice, this is the religious leaders. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. Duh. Yes, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent in spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something that he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. We can't deal with him. We'll let the Romans deal with him. How are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? They think and they think. And then finally, we don't know what meeting it happened in, but they had a a thought of just absolute devilish genius. What's this Jesus talk about all the time? He talks about the kingdom all the time. The the gospel of the kingdom, that's that's his theme. The gospel of the kingdom. There's the trap. We'll trap him between religion and politics. Because we know what the people think about a king, and we know what the Romans think about a king, we'll trap him between the two. And so they attempt to do that. 
they ask the question. Teacher, verse 21, we know you speak the, and teach rightly. And show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. You hearing this? Big liars. <laughs> and here comes the trap. They think this is it. Here's the trap. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? <laughs> they think they've got him on the horns of a dilemma. If he says, no, it's not, it's not right, now he's in trouble with the Romans. If he says, yes, it is, he's in trouble with the populace. They've got him on the horns of a dilemma. And the tip of it is taxes. Taxes. Money. Follow the money. Clarifies all things. They think they have him cornered. But they're about to discover that Jesus is the cornerstone of truth. You don't corner the cornerstone. Okay. So Jesus makes a request. What's his request? Show me a denarius. Show me a denarius. Indicates Jesus didn't even have one in his possession. Show me one. And he holds it up and he asks a question. Verse 23. He asks this question. Verse 24. Whose likeness? An inscription, does this have? And they said, Caesar's. He's holding up a denarius. Whose image is on it? Tiberius Caesar. That's the face. What's his inscription? On the reverse side, it says this. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The image of the emperor, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And I think, what a scene. Here is the image of God Almighty, Jesus of Nazareth. Who is the son of the most high God. And he holds up a coin. That says, Caesar, son of divine Augustus. Wow. Then Jesus, when he does respond, they say, well, it's Caesar's. Here is his brilliant response. It's so amazing. It's brilliant. It's so awesome. In its importance. It is brilliant, but we must not miss its importance for us because Jesus is not speaking just to his enemies, he's speaking to his friends and his followers forever. Verse 25 He said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things 
that are God's. Now, we need to listen carefully to those words. And church, listen, we need to quote this verse carefully because it's often misquoted. Jesus did not say, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, but to God the things that are God's. That's not what he said. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What is Jesus affirming? He's affirming on earth there are two spheres of authority. There's two legitimate spheres of authority. Caesar's and God's. What he is saying is that yes, you should affirm and recognize the authority of Caesar. The government. Recognize and affirm the authority of government, but recognize and submit to the authority of God. Now, Jesus affirms these two authorities, but he did not say they're equal authorities. But they are two divine authorities, and we need to make sure we understand them. Listen carefully. There is only one supreme authority, God Almighty. He has absolute authority. He has no rival. But God, in His supreme total authority, has delegated limited authority on earth to government. There's a place for government. God ordains authority for human beings to govern themselves. That does not mean that God affirms everything that government does. Make sure you're clear on that. Just because God ordains and affirms the authority of the government doesn't mean he agrees with everything. The government does it. Matter of fact, many times he completely rejects as right what the authority of the government affirms. But it does teach us that God says through Christ, government has legitimate authority. It's delegated from God because all authority is God's. It's delegated and it's limited. Now, how do we recognize? How does the Bible say we're to recognize this delegated and limited authority of government? How does God tell us that we should do that? Well, there's many ways, but here Jesus just starts right here. Pay taxes. I'm, I'm sorry, especially after what was voted on, House of Representatives. <laughs> Pay taxes. Pay them to who? Uh, Caesar. Tiberius, what a great guy he was. <laughs> Pay taxes. Practice civil obedience. We recognize legitimate authority as we practice civil obedience. 
We pay the taxes. Honor to whom honor is due. Tribute to whom tribute is due. This is talking about taxation. How else do we recognize authority, delegate authority? We pray for our leaders. Because we recognize that God has ordained them. We're to pray for them. Say you don't know how to pray for them. Well, how about praying for them like you pray, I hope, for family members and neighbors. Pray for their salvation. Pray for them as they lead. We're to pray for our leaders. But also, how do we recognize our role under delegated authority? We participate in public life. We participate in public life. What did Jesus say that we are to be? Salt and what? Light. We're not to be light under a bushel. We're not to be salt that just gathers together in a little shaker called Sunday mornings. We're we're to spread the light and scatter the salt of the truth of the kingdom. What happens when Christians participate? Well, we've seen happen. Child labor laws have been enacted to protect our children. Slavery has been outlawed, recognized for the evil that it is. Discrimination, treating people differently because of their ethnicity or the color of their skin. What an awful evil when God is the creator of all people and everyone's made in his image think of Christian involvement and the issues of poverty addressing poverty in our world education the issue of pro-life life The sacredness of life before birth. And friends, listen, the sacredness of all human life after they are born. Sacredness of all life. Treating everyone with dignity because they bear the image of the Maker, our Heavenly Father. These are the things that we are to do as we're under this authority. Recognized of delegated to the government. But quickly I close here. Jesus said that Caesar's authority, the government's authority is delegated and limited authority but God has inherent and absolute authority. We are to render to God the things that are God's. What are we to give to God alone? Listen up. Number one, our ultimate devotion which means our worship. We respect the state. We respect the government. But we don't worship the government. We don't bow in adoration of the government. We worship Christ alone. And God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We worship the true God. We will not bow or surrender our faith, which is our devotion to Christ. You know, the early Christians, very early, faced martyrdom. You know why they faced martyrdom? Because they would not pledge allegiance 
You know how you pledged allegiance? You had to take a little incense, burn it over the altar, just a little touch of incense. You didn't have to even mean it. Just a little incense over an altar that was set up for Caesar, and all you had to do was say three words. Caesar es curios. Caesar is Lord. And the followers of Jesus were willing to suffer martyrdom rather than to call Caesar divine. And Caesar's Lord, they would not do it. God has ultimate, our ultimate devotion and God has our ultimate duty is toward Him, which is obedience. We all owe Him ultimate obedience. What did the wisest man who ever lived, what did he say after he'd had his terrible midlife crisis? It's in the Bible. It's called Ecclesiastes. The wisest man that ever lived, the richest man that ever lived, King Solomon, tried it all. And here's where he wound up. Ecclesiastes, he says this. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Worship God and keep His commandments. What this means of us as believers is that we obey the government until it means that we must disobey God in order to obey the government. And we will not do that. We will obey until obeying would mean disobeying God and then we must stand, yes, with the persecuted Brothers and sisters of the ages and of this very day, we must stand with the apostles of old who said we must, what? Obey God rather than man. Amen. Now, friend, listen carefully. That doesn't mean your preferences are mine. That means God's precepts. Do not be in a real hurry to say you are practicing civil disobedience when it's just your preference. Your preference, my preference, is not the Word of God. But when God's will is clearly stated in His Word, then we cannot yield. Because it's not a matter of personal preference. It's a matter of allegiance to our King. We need to be clear on that. A lot of people today throwing around things that need to be considered carefully in prayer. Is this the word of the Lord? And if we do suffer, how do we suffer? Well, here's what Peter said. If anyone suffers as a Christian... If anyone suffers, let him do it as a Christian, following his master's path. He says, rejoice if you suffer as a Christian. You know what Paul said? The Apostle Paul said, it has been given to you and me 
This great honor has been given to you and me, not just to believe on Christ, but to suffer for his name. It's an honor. I'm going to ask us, will we suffer honorably? Will we suffer honorably? Suffering for Christ is honorable and suffering for Christ is powerful. Did you hear our brother Emil up here? You talk about suffering. Our brothers and sisters under the communist, dictatorial, hate-filled rule. But they could not stamp out the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, brother? And you go to Romania today, there's a vibrant church. There's a church alive. My friend, the church father Tertullian said it in the second century AD, the blood of the martyrs is what? The seed of the church. You cannot stop the church. Don't even let that get in your mind. Why? Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, the authority of hell, will not be able to stand against it. Friends, we need to get our minds right. Get off of the idea that it's the gates of hell coming at us. Whoa! No, we're going against the gates of hell. In the name of Jesus and in the power of the gospel with grace and truth and love. What are we? We are lambs that roar the gospel. Jesus is our king. Oh, I know I missed last Sunday and you always pay for it on this Sunday, don't you? And I know. And it's time change Sunday and your stomach is telling you already. It's it, it's going on one o'clock here, Sam. Okay. Well, it is. And it's time for the sweetest meal of all. What is it? Our Lord's Supper, our communion. Now, we're going to take communion, and here's what I want you to remember. Our King, who asks everything of us, our worship, and our allegiance, our king who asks everything of us, is our king who has given everything for us. He's given everything for us. Father, I pray now you prepare us, prepare our hearts as we come to this time of communion. We sing to you, we celebrate again this reminder that you've given through Christ. Lord, may our souls be nourished now in this moment. May we examine ourselves so that we may, through your grace, partake in a worthy manner of this great meal that you have provided. In Jesus' name.